Truth News Network. A president lies. You know he's lying. He knows you know he's lying. And you know he knows you know. So what do you do? Hmm? You might want to figure it out. How about someone telling the truth? We can help you with that. We're TNN, the Truth News Network. And the man you can rely on is Dan Newman. That would be me. And um, I'm pretty much here for you. Regardless, whatever you want to talk about, whatever questions you have that need answering, if I don't have an answer, I'll uh, I'll either tell you where to go to get the answer or, or we'll find it and get back with you later to discuss. Because if things are important to you folks, they're important to us. So good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Midweek, here we are. Hump day. And uh, looking down the throat of Halloween. And then Thanksgiving, and shortly after that, Hanukkah, Christmas, and then New Year's. Folks, 2021 is very close to getting into our rearview mirrors, isn't it? And boy, what a full year. What a year full of questions and not enough answers for those questions. So unless something dramatic happens between now and January 1st, um, we're going to end the year with a whole lot of questions that we've been asking since January 1 this year. That would be 12 months of not getting very important, very critical answers to some critical issues in all of our lives. I can't remember a single time in history where there's been so much misinformation, misrepresentation, and gross use of um, power to control other people. We're seeing it play out every day. And what I don't want to see happen ever is for the American populace to just get conditioned to the fact that, well, the government's going to, every day, they're going to reach deeper and deeper into our lives and snatch more and more of our freedoms away from us, and we get accustomed to that. We just think it's okay. I've spent some time in parts of Europe and Southeast Asia And um, there's a mindset that goes along with it where you get conditioned to whatever has been happening around you. And uh, the more it happens and the more you find ways to deal with it, whether it's good or bad is immaterial, but you find ways to deal with it, you process it, make it part of your everyday life thinking, then it just becomes a normal thing. And um, we can look in our history and look at the history of the world, look at the history of Europe and Asia, and we see, I mean, plain old despotism, totalitarian rule, slaughtering citizens of countries just because the government doesn't like them, that's normalized in our history. Thankfully, not so much our history, but in the history of the world. We don't want to go down that road. And every day now, something leaks out of this Congress, out of this administration, that shows that some of that very thought process is finding its way into this government, this U.S. Congress, and this presidential administration. Give me an example. I've looked in horror at quite a few school board meetings from across the country where American parents, who in large numbers are finally realizing their children are being indoctrinated in public schools about all things far left. Those Far things run the gambit from critical race theory 
to same-sex marriage, LGTBQ rights, safe sex while in elementary school, even transgenderism, and even how to ignore parents who try to teach kids real moral values at home. So what's so horrible is how these school boards are becoming militant in their pushback against these parents. God forbid a mom or dad has a desire to handle the teaching of morality to their kids while at home. I mean, I remember when that was expected. In fact, if parents didn't do it, teachers would get up in arms. Not so much now. That inalienable right to do that belongs to public school educators and administrators, we're being told. 20 years ago, nobody would even bat an eye at that statement. Say that in public today, you're going to be at least immediately canceled by everybody from the vice president to the pope. They're getting bolder in their tug of war over who has the primary responsibility for educating our kids. But the parents aren't going to let go. That's a good thing. I see that in the eyes and I see it in the fiery debates that are going on all across the country. You've seen them. I mean, social media is rife with them. In the last debate before the November election in Virginia, Democratic Virginia gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe, he's been the governor before, he was challenged by Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin about his own veto in his earlier term as governor of a bill that would have created an alert for parents when sexual material was present in educational materials. McAuliffe responded that he was proud of the veto. Here's what he said. I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. So when he was asked later, McAuliffe was asked later about that by a local CBS affiliate. Listen to what he said. Quote, listen, we have a board of education working with the local school boards to determine curriculum for our schools. You don't want parents coming in in every different school jurisdiction saying this is what should be taught here and this is what should be taught there. So Youngkin clearly thinks this is a winning issue for him. He tweeted that McAuliffe might like to look at what Virginia law says about the rights of parents. A parent, this is a Virginia law, a parent has a fundamental right to make decisions concerning the upbringing, education, and care of the parent's child. He also released an ad the next day based on the debate exchange in which he replied to McAuliffe, You believe school systems should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of their kids' education. So the message from progressive politicians and these education bureaucrats, it's pretty clear, folks. Parents ought to have no say in what public education is about. Terry McAuliffe is not alone in this view. At a hearing of the Senate Committee on Health Education, Labor and Pensions, Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana asked Education Secretary Miguel Cardona whether parents ought to be considered the primary stakeholders in their children's education. Cardona would only agree as they are important stakeholders, not the primary stakeholders, but that educators have a role in determining educational 
programming, his word, programming. The refusal to acknowledge parents as primary gives us an indication of which role educators have in educational programming. It's the final word. And folks, parents don't even count in that process. While teachers used to think of themselves as acting in loco parentis, which is the Latin phrase meaning in place of the parents who were not present, they now think of themselves having taken over the place of parental authority entirely. Folks, they really feel that way across the nation. Fortunately, there are still enough parents out there who think this idea is just plain nuts. And I'm one of them. School boards in Virginia and all over the country have been seeing more outraged parents coming to school board meetings to complain about the ways in which their own views are ignored on a whole range of issues, but especially sexual conduct in curriculum and the use of CRT, critical race theory, as the guiding philosophy of education and its corresponding destruction of educational quality in the name of, here we go, not equality. They threw that out the door. Now it's equity. You know what the difference between the two are. Equality is, is an endowed right by our creator. Equity can be manipulated and is, is expected to be manipulated by people. People have the right to determine what's equitable and what isn't. Big difference. But that's what this group now are fighting for in our public schools. Equity. And, of course, they want to be the arbiters of what equity means in every circumstance. While Democrats in their legacy media and higher ed adjuncts have attempted to brush off this rebellion as some sort of partisan or racist, there you go, the all-purpose progressive rebuttal when they have no answers, racism, and, of course, anger. It's clear that there are many Americans who are upset with the way in which Public education has become hazardous to children's intellectual health. And it trickles downhill from there. I mean, kids' social skills, their view of themselves. I mean, we've got more kids that are attempting and are successful at committing suicide at younger ages than ever before. And it has a lot to do with this. On the same day, the Secretary Cardona refused to acknowledge parents as primary stakeholders in their children's education. The National School Boards Association. Did you know there's one of those? Not a local school board association. The National School Boards Association, which claims to represent 90,000 school board members across the country. That association wrote a letter to President Biden asking him to crack down on parents who are upset at mask mandates and the teaching of critical race theory in schools using every federal agency. This is what they asked President Biden to do. Use every federal agency and statute they could think of, including the Patriot Act, which is about spying. Not only does the letter repeat the laughable notion that schools don't teach critical race theory because it is a, quote, complex law school and graduate school subject well beyond the scope of a K-12 through class. But it gives a hint as to which offenses the Fed should be cracking down on. Among incidents in which parents are concerned citizens have actually become violent, 
They also include incidents in which people have mocked school board members and accused them of attempting to sneak critical race theory into the curriculum. Sticks and tones may break my bones, but names are also a violation of the Patriot Act, according to the education blob. So what are the parents to do to fight back against the blob? Trafalgar Polling conducted a nationwide poll in July, two months ago, three months ago, asking over 1,000 parents across the nation how they should react if CRT becomes part of the curriculum in their child's public schools. Overall, 29% of parents said they would teach their children what to believe at home without interfering in the school. 28% said they would remove their kids from public school and send them to private schools or homeschool them. And 24% said they would work to take over the school board. These three options seem to be the main ones available. So how does that break out? Well, Democrats, who made up 39% of the respondents, and those claiming no party or other, were much more likely to say they would just teach their children at home and not interfere. They're more likely than Republicans. Republicans were much more likely to take their kids out of the schools or try to take over the school board than Democrats are. To put it bluntly, Republicans, folks, are in the right on this one. Without any effective action, public school bureaucracies will continue to embrace CRT and they'll amp it up. You can book it. Critical race theory, critical gender theory, and every other destructive fad that comes down the pike, they're going to push it to the hilt. To push back against all this has got to be a matter of what? Pushing back. And that involves either getting into their governance or putting pressure on them economically by pulling their kids out of public schools. The difficulty with the taking over of school boards is that it takes a lot of time and a whole lot of extra effort. The political machinery. We're learning every day how wide and deep and sophisticated from the top down it is. And it's hard to start at the bottom and work up effectively. That doesn't mean there are not groups out there who are dedicated to doing just that. In fact, there are a lot of groups doing it right now. Ballotpedia has been keeping track of school board recall events since 06, recording on average about 23 recall efforts against 52 board members per year up to last year. In 2021, however, they recorded as of September 71 recall efforts targeting 183 different public school board members. These grassroots efforts to recall those board members, win elections, and influence existing boards has been helped out by groups such as Parents Defending Education, a Loudoun County, Virginia group, and No Left Turn in Education, an organization started by Ilana Fishbein in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. That's a suburb of Philly. These groups have themselves been aided by about 30 national conservative organizations and foundations. That's according to an Associated Press article that focused on the efforts in Wisconsin to recall board members who have been pursuing divisive diversity goals. 
In addition to these efforts, Politico reports that parents are putting up campaigns for school board that are explicitly against diversity and oppression curricula. While repeating the no CRT is really taught here lines, which they say that when they're confronted with it, almost in unanimity. Oh, we don't teach CRT. The article notes that candidates all over the country are opposing them, many successfully in Ohio, Indiana, and elsewhere. In Houston, all the anti-critical race theory candidates in a recent school board election won, while in South Lake, Texas, two such candidates won with over 70% of the vote. It can be done in many parts of the country. South Lake, folks, very upscale, very upscale middle class, a great part. It's right in the middle between Dallas and Fort Worth. I love South Lake, Texas. It's a great place to go visit. I would never, never think that 70% of those people over there would vote and elect somebody who is pro-critical race theory and pro-equity teachings. Most parents sadly, don't have the time to both fight City Hall or its educational equivalent and make sure their own kids are being educated apart from it and often against what they're learning in their public schools. This is why the move to opt out of public schools has been so great over the last decade. This year alone, one and a half million children left the public school system. You hadn't heard that number touted, have you? a number that was made even greater by so many schools' determination to stay online. If parents can no longer influence public schools, the best option for them, take their kids elsewhere. And to facilitate this, however, takes, you guessed it, money. That's why the development of school choice options is so important. Now is the time, given that a real clear opinion poll in June showed a striking 74% of American parents support school choice, a full 10% increase since just a year ago. Perhaps the best development this year has been the passage of HB 2013 in West Virginia. It's called the HOPE Scholarship Program. This education savings account allows students leaving the public school system to take up to $4,600 with them to pay for tuition, books, and other costs at private schools and homeschooling. The American Federation for Children has interactive maps showing the expanded school choice program this year as well as those available in the U.S. right now. Simply helping parents take control over their child's education where they can't influence their public school is a big first step. But there's one more that remains. State and local governments can work toward building an accountability mechanism into this equation. I mean, something guaranteeing local school budgets will be cut when there are lower class sizes. School board members may go along with the wokeness for a while, but if their budgets shrink, they may as well ask whether they ought to rethink what kind of loco they want to be in relation to parents. Legendary basketball coach Bobby Knight used to say that one should lead, follow, or get out of the way. More parents are demanding to be recognized as the primary stakeholders in their children's education. They're refusing to follow educators who think that good education involves explicit sex, 
divisive and harmful notions about race or the denial of opportunities in the name of equity. They're either going to lead the fight to take back these schools or get out of the way and take their money with them, build up an education that is truly fit for the public. Scariest of all is that it may be too late to salvage at least one full generation of Americans that apparently were bathed in this crud beginning in even first grade. Educators then maintained the CRT leftist mantra throughout their formative years so as to have them ready for the world after college, full of leftist ideology. Instead of getting mad about all this, remember this one thing. This is really important to put in perspective. Those educators and teachers in the public school system are the same folks that back in the middle 60s were marching and protesting against the Vietnam War. Many of you know what I'm talking about. A bunch of them went to Woodstock in 1969. I came within a hair's breadth of going myself. And of course, that meant free sex, hallucinogenic LSD, marijuana, hatred for the man. These are the teachers and professors, and their kids have grown up and become the teachers and professors just like mom and dad. And we've sent our kids there for education, folks. And this brainwashing operated stealthily for decades without us even knowing about it or even thinking about it. Now, don't tell me educators should be teaching my kids anything. And don't try to force this leftist ideology down the throats, down their throats or my throat. The scales have fallen off the eyes of a generation of parents who will not accept this despotism. That's exactly what it is. And we remember marching and protesting without rioting, looting, and taking drugs. We can do it again. Minus, of course, the drugs thing. Militarism? No one knows how powerful are a bunch of angry mamas and daddies whose kids have been indoctrinated by their school teachers. You've heard that term, hell hath no woman, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. The same thing holds true. Hell hath no fury like that of a bunch of mad moms and dads about education issues for their babies. So, I want to go right from that into something that happened yesterday on Capitol Hill. Um, On Monday of this week, two days ago, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, he issued a one-page memorandum about the parents' issues about going to these school board meetings. You've seen them all over television. And there have been a lot of uh, parents that have, I mean, they have gone to these meetings, they've sat out in a crowd, they've stood at the back of the room, sometimes for hours, wanting to voice their opinions to these school board members about what is being taught to their kids at school. From everything you can imagine, things we mentioned here and other things. And this is happening across the nation. Parents' eyes are being open to what's going on. And there's been some anger, there's been some screaming and hollering, But I always heard, I don't know who told me, but I always heard that Americans have the right to speak their minds. And sometimes that means it's okay to say something that might hack somebody else off. 
So keeping that in context, and also keeping in context this term that I used in that two or three paragraphs toward the bottom of the summary today, the man, keeping that in context, I want, I want to read you. This is what the Attorney General put out there. And he sent it. It says, Memorandum for Director, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, Assistant Attorney General, Criminal Division, Criminal Division, United States Attorney. And it's signed by Merrick Garland, Attorney General. Here's what he said. And this is like one, two, three, four paragraphs. In recent months, there's been a disturbing spike and, and, and I'm going to point out, I want you to recognize and think about the terms he included. There's been a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff who participate in the vital work of running our nation's public schools. While spirited debate about policy matters is protected under our Constitution, that protection does not extend to threats of violence or efforts to intimidate individuals based on their views. Threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's core values. Those who dedicate their time and energy to ensuring that our kids receive a proper education in a safe environment deserve to be able to do their work without fear for their safety. The Department, Department of Justice, takes these incidents seriously and is committed to using its authority and resources to discourage these threats, identify them when they occur, and prosecute them when appropriate. In the coming days, the department will announce a series of measures designed to address the rise in criminal conduct directed towards school personnel. Notice he used that phrase. These measures are designed to address, quote, the rise in criminal conduct directed towards school personnel. Criminal conduct. And he closed with this. Coordination and partnership with local law enforcement is critical to implementing these measures for the benefit of our nation's nearly 14,000 public school districts. To this end, I am convening meetings with federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial leaders in each federal judicial district within 30 days of the issuance of this memo. These meetings will facilitate the discussion of strategies for addressing threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff, and will open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response. The Department of Justice is steadfast in its commitment to protect all people in the United States from violence, threats of violence, and other forms of intimidation and harassment. That's the Attorney General. Now, what does that sound like to you? What does that mean to you? First of all, let me just say this. What he said in there, it's it's so veiled, the threats are. It's so veiled, but it's so obvious. Everybody knows what he's talking about. It has nothing to do with criminal actions. Folks, right now, Anything that is a, a crime, either federal or local, including the treatment of other people, including threats of physical violence, is illegal across the board. So my question is, A.G. Garland, 
If those things are happening, as your letter alleges are happening, we've seen these parents getting very upset at these meetings. I would think it would be a massive nationwide story if any parent or parents at any of these school board meetings actually threatened a school board member or a teacher or a public school educator. Don't you? I mean, don't you think we would have seen or heard about that? And if we had, folks... Those acts are illegal right now under the federal law. So what's Garland saying? Hey, we haven't been doing our jobs at the DOG, DOJ. We were supposed to be out there looking at, investigating, analyzing, and prosecuting any of those that have committed any criminal offenses. So is he saying we hadn't been doing it, but we're going to do it now? No, 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 no. He just went past all that. What he is doing, folks, is lighting a fire, a fire of persecution to quash these parents' abilities and rights to go to these meetings and weigh in on what they feel is best for their own kids. And Merrick Garland is saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to stop this. You're not going to tell these teachers, these public education administrators and school board members, you're not going to tell them what they can and can't teach. Former Governor Terry McAuliffe running again. You heard what he said. We're not going to let these people come in here and tell us what books we can use in our curriculums or not. We're not going to do that. I mean, he just he just came right out and said it. He said it previously when he was a governor the first time. That was a decade ago. So this isn't just something that popped out from under a rock. It's been going on for decades. And American parents have either been oblivious to it or they've been ignoring it. God forbid that would be the case. All three of mine and Marianne's kids went through the, from start to finish, the public school system. Got great educations, but this was back in the 90s. I'm sure you'll agree, school, public school, even private schools are way different. The atmosphere, the environment is way different in 2021 than it was back in the early 90s. Change happens. And there's no question it will continue to happen. But guess what? The framework of the United States Constitution and the rule of law, other than adding new laws deleting old laws legislatively, that's the way the Constitution works, either at the federal, the state, or the local level. Unless and until those things happen, we can't afford to have an attorney general sitting up there pontificating, sharing in his pontifications his personal, political, partisan view of what public education is to be. And giving us actually a threat to stifle the expression of our opinions. What he's doing in this memo, folks, it may not be over the line, but he walked right up to the line of totalitarianism, not socialism, but stuff that Hitler did in Germany, that Stalin did in Russia. Seriously, this guy is telling FBI agents to go monitor. And there's no definition in this memo where he said they're going to monitor uh, threats. 
A threat of what? A threat of taking action? So, let me ask you this. If a parent gets up and said, you either do the right thing or else, that can be determined subjectively. And that's what the Democrat leadership loves. They don't like the absolutes. It's this or it's that. There's no gray in between. They want it to be all gray. You know why? So they can determine on their own in whatever situation they feel an outcome that feeds their policies and their narrative, whatever emboldens that, that's the way that threat, quote unquote, is going to be determined to be actual criminal action or just an opinion. This is scary to me. It should frighten every one of you, especially about your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, anybody that is in school at any level. This is not just K through 12. I mean, this is the same thing and worse is happening in our colleges and universities. And by the way, we're paying millions of dollars for that after 12 years of public education. There's somebody else that jumped on the wagon here after we had already uh, finished today's story that we just shared with you in context, after we did that and got it set up to publish, I just happened to get a look-see into a congressional hearing. Senator Josh Hawley, one of my favorites, he's from Missouri, young guy. I got to be honest with you. I think he's headed for bigger things in politics because he's honest He speaks his mind, and he is conservative to the bone, and I haven't seen him yet lay down and just give his life in total to any political group whatsoever, even though he is a Republican, Josh Hawley. He had a DOJ, a member of uh, Merrick Garland's staff in a Senate hearing. I want you to listen to this discussion, and he's discussing and talking about the very memo that I just shared with you that was issued on Monday, two days ago, by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Here, here's Josh, Josh Hawley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ms. Monaco, I want to come back to this extraordinary letter and memorandum that the Attorney General of the United States issued yesterday. Practically every day brings new reports about this administration weaponizing the federal bureaucracy to go after political opponents. Frankly, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in American history. I mean, for those of us who missed the McCarthy era, I guess this president is intent on bringing it to us, but with new force and new power and new urgency, unlike anything we've ever seen. Are you aware of any time in American history when an attorney general has directed the FBI to begin to intervene in school board meetings, local school board meetings? I'm not aware, and I'm not aware that that, and that is not going on. Let me be very, very Really, this clear. isn't about local school board meetings? That's not the subject of the memorandum? I thought that was in the memorandum. The memorandum is quite clear. It's one page, um, and it asks um, the uh, U.S. attorney community and the FBI special agents in charge to convene state and local law enforcement partners um, to ensure that there's an open line of communication to address threats, to address violence, um, and that's the appropriate role of the Department of Justice to make sure that we are addressing uh, criminal conduct and violence. At, at local school board meetings. Let me just ask you this. Is parents waiting sometimes for hours to speak at a local school board meeting to express concerns about critical race theory or the masking of their students, particularly young children, 
Is that in and of itself, is, is that harassment and intimidation? Is waiting to express one's view at a school board meeting harassment and intimidation? As the Attorney General's memorandum made quite clear, spirited debate is welcome, is a hallmark of this country. Um, it's something we all should engage in. And no, I don't think so, Ms. Monica. With all due respect, it didn't make it quite clear. It doesn't define those terms, nor does it define harassment or intimidation. It talks about violence. I think we can agree that violence shouldn't be condoned or looked aside from in any way, swept under the rug at all. But harassment and intimidation, what do those terms mean in the context of a local school board meeting? I mean, this seems to, in the First Amendment context, we talk about the chill, the chill to speech. If this isn't a deliberate attempt to chill parents from showing up at school board meetings for their elected school boards, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm not... I'm not aware of anything like this in American history. We're talking about the FBI. You're using the FBI to intervene in school board meetings. That's extraordinary. Senator, I have to respectfully disagree. That is not what- Point me to an instance. The, the Attorney General's memorandum um, made quite clear that um, violence is not appropriate. Spirited public debate on a whole range of issues is absolutely what this country is all about. Um, then why when is it being investigated if, by the FBI? If, it is not. When and if um, any um, uh, situation turns to violence, then that is the appropriate role of law enforcement to address it. Um, oh, the what, memorandum what, covers more than violence. It talks about intimidation. It talks about harassment. So I'm asking you to draw some lines. We do this all the time in the First Amendment context. This is the, this is the sum and substance of First Amendment law. So I expect that she'll be available and, and willing to do it now. Tell me where the line is with parents expressing their concerns, waiting for hours in these school board meetings. We've all seen the videos. This has happened in my state. Parents have waited for hours. Sometimes the school board meetings have been ended before they can speak because the school board doesn't want to hear it. And now parents are told that if they wait and they express their views, that they, they may be investigated for intimidation? I don't know who's telling them that, Senator. The job of the Justice Department is to investigate crimes when uh, a situation turns to violence, when and if a situation turns to violence, it's the job of the Justice Department and local law enforcement to address that. The Attorney General's memorandum simply uh, asked the U.S. Attorney community, the FBI, uh, and their counterparts to ensure that state and local law enforcement has an open line of communication uh, to report threats, whether they um, happen in the context of election officials being threatened, whether they haven't happened in the context of members of Congress being threatened, which the FBI responds to uh, on a regular basis, as is appropriate. The job of the Justice Department is to address criminal conduct. You know, all I can say is this is truly extraordinary. I think you know it is. It's unprecedented. You can't point to a single instance where anything like this has happened before. And I think parents across this country are going to be stunned to learn, stunned, that if they show up at a local school or board meeting, by the way, where they have the right to appear and be heard, where they have the right to say something about their children's education, where they have the right to vote, and you are attempting to intimidate them. You are attempting to silence them. You are attempting to interfere with their rights as parents and, yes, with their rights as voters. This is wrong. This is dangerous. And I cannot believe that an attorney general of the United States is engaging in this kind of conduct. And frankly, I can't believe that you are sitting here today 
defending it. I intend to get answers to these questions. You won't answer my questions. I'm going to get answers to these questions. Mr. Chairman, we need to have a hearing on this subject. We need to hear from the Attorney General himself. He needs to come here, take the oath, sit there, and answer questions. We have never seen anything like this before in our country's history. And frankly, I, I want to say I think it is a dangerous, dangerous precedent. It's hard for me to even process the words that came out of that woman's mouth. The only context in which it's realistic to explain it is just as Senator Hawley represented. I mean, if the if the Attorney General meant anything else than other what he wrote, you would think he would explain it or would come out and say, hey, wait a minute, let me clarify what I meant. No, 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 no. That's what he meant, folks. That's exactly what Attorney General Merrick Garland meant. Now, in the context of politics, let me just remind you of this before we go to our first break. Um, in the context of clarity, he's not the first. Merrick Garland is not the first. Eric Holder, Barack Obama's first attorney general, did some of the same exact things. In fact, he doubled and tripled down on it and threw it back in people's faces that questioned his authority to do some of those things. And so make no mistakes about it, folks. They're in this thing. They're in this thing. They are committed. They are going to push and push and push. And so what are we going to do? What are we parents and grandparents going to do about all this? That's the big question. So we're going to move on. Um, Not because this isn't important and not because we can't get into it and find some other areas that we need to consider, but just basically for time. Uh, incidentally, at any point, don't forget, if you want to weigh in, ask questions, join a conversation about anything specific, you can call us toll-free, 1-866-37-TRUTH, 1-866-378-7884. Love to hear from you. What's on the schedule? Well, we've got so many things to talk about. We're not going to get through it all on this hump day, but... uh, About this debt ceiling thing, that's the big battle currently underway. Well, one of the big battles on Capitol Hill, some members of Congress came up with a panacea, a fix-all, and it involves a coin, a coin, a single coin, not a bunch of them, one coin to take care of our debt limit problem. You're not going to believe this. That's right after this at TNN Live. Are you ready for best life minus the burnout? I'm Zuri Hall from NBC's Access Hollywood, and my new podcast, Hot Happy Mess, is all about the most important VIP, you. Join us each Monday as we discuss relationships, self-care, career, and much more. Our podcast is for mindful, ambitious, diverse millennial women who are ready for more happiness, laughter, peace, and purpose now. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, and it's easy to see why. Listen to Hot Happy Mess every week on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Few things bring as much joy as the delicious taste of Coca-Cola. Like your first time camping or falling in love on a flying date. And now, our new Coke bottles are sip-sized and made from 100% recycled materials. So every bottle can live on to create more memories. That's endlessly refreshing. Coca-Cola. Bottles are made from 100% recycled materials excluding cap and label. Enjoy the great taste of Coca-Cola in a new sip-sized bottle that's made of 100% recycled materials. Today on Hey Culligan, softer equals 
better, here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey, Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy, I just cut myself on a cable knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey, Ed Itchy in Idaho, yes, the Culligan High Efficiency Water Softener will make that thing so soft, it'll go from cable knit to cable knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months of participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Married to the truth, divorced from the lies, fighting for the future. TNN, the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. And again, Dan Newman. It is about fighting for the future. We've got today. We're on it. We know what's going on right now today. We can't change that. It's basically, at least the structure for it is already in the books. But tomorrow? Well, that's a different story. Or tomorrow, we need to make it a different story. We don't want it to end up looking exactly like today in many ways. Now, look, I'm not painting a picture. I'm not trying to infer anything. I'm not telling you the sky is falling. That's not what this is about. What it is is wake-up calls for all of us. We've got to look at this segment of our lives as Americans, this segment, this segment, and we just have to tackle them one at a time and deal with the issues and the problems that are inherent in each of them. That's the only way we're going to get to tomorrow and tomorrow being what we want it to be and what our forefathers wanted to be and planned it and gave us the framework to do just that. They got it started and basically they passed the baton to their kids and then their kids, they just moved it a little bit further down the line and passed it along to their kids. And generations later, here we are, we're doing the same thing. We can't let any of this, especially education, go backwards. We got to fix it up. Hey, you know what blows my mind? Um, the United States of America used to, every year, be in the top four or five in the ratings of education of our kids around the world. We're not even in the top 30 now. But yet, every year, we spend more and more and more and more of our tax dollars for education, and every year, more and more and more results of our education are bad. There are an enormous number of kids that graduate from high school that can't read. That just blows my mind. Now you'll say, oh, well, that's just in some school districts in some states. That doesn't happen in our state, in our school system. I will guarantee you this. If you objectively have access to and go find out, can ask and get answers to questions, you'll find out that in your public school system, there are a lot of kids that are given diplomas. They walk across the stage, get that diploma, celebrating the fact that they've gotten a 12-year high school and elementary school education, and they've succeeded. They can't even read. 
That's where we really are, not perceptually, not the way that we or these bureaucrats in education want it to be, but that's the state they have left our kids in, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and it will continue until and unless we stop it. Well, there's another little conundrum up in Washington that Congress and this presidential administration are dealing with. We're out of money. Well, how could we possibly run out of money? Well, when you spend way, 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 way more than you get in revenue, you got to borrow money. So how does our government borrow money? Basically what they do is they go down into a basement, they got a printing press down there, and they put some blank paper on this printing press, and they print treasury bonds, bonds or pieces of paper, and they sell them to, I don't know, anybody and everybody, insurance companies, uh, investment banks, foreign countries invest in the United States by buying treasury bonds, and so we pay them back. And the way we pay them back is every year, every quarter, depends on the terms of each bond offering, we pay interest on the face value of those bonds. But when they buy them, we take that money and guess what? We spend it. We don't have it in the bank. We just create a piece of paper, a promissory note, and we sell that. Novel idea, isn't it? So we're about to run out of money. I think it's the 16th. Is I think that's when, according to Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, we're out of dough. So they got to do something. You got to make it legal so we can borrow some more money. Well, some politicians, hey, they found a silver bullet for this. Except the bullet they found, it's made of platinum. What are they going to do with platinum? They tell us they're going to mint a $1 trillion coin and use it to flood the treasury with cash. And in doing that, of course, they say, we're going to drive the Republicans crazy. Even its serious proponents, those who are really for it, call it a gimmick. They say it's an oddball way out of an oddball accounting problem that will have severe consequences to average people's pocketbooks, like mine and yours. Well, maybe you're not average. Maybe you're a financial tycoon. But if it doesn't impact you directly, it's certainly going to impact our economy if it's not worked out, this debt limit thing, in the next few days. But despite all the jokes about who should go on the face of the coin, <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese, Donald Trump, to tempt or taunt the GOP, there's a scholarship. There is scholarship behind it, too. However improbable, it is conceivable, folks, the government could turn $1 trillion into a coin of the realm without Congress even having a say-so. So how's this possible? Well, it's from a quirky law from about 20 years ago. And the law seems to allow the administration to mint coins of any denomination without any congressional approval. But the law says they've got to be platinum. So that makes them more valuable instantly. Yeah, instead of being worth all $100 billion, this particular one would be worth a trillion. The intent of doing the law was to help with the production of commemorative coins for collectors. 
not to create a nuclear option in a fiscal crisis. That's what this would be. Specifically, the law says the Treasury Secretary, quote, may mint and issue platinum bullion coins and proof platinum coins in accordance with such specifications, designs, varieties, quantities, denominations, and inscriptions as the Secretary, in the Secretary's discretion, may prescribe from time to time. Uh, This would be that time in the view of these coin advocates. But Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, the White House, some Democrats slapped down the idea yesterday, just as past leaders have done when the going got tough and the quick fix ideas began to pop up. The only thing kookier would be a politically inflicted default. That was Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia. He was talking about the coin. Janet Yellen said what's necessary is for Congress to show that the world can count on America paying its debt. She said a platinum coin is just a gimmick. Sure it is. (laughs) Sure it is, said Robert Gray, a Willamette University law professor and expert on fiscal policy. Here's what he said. The fact that the coin represents just an accounting gimmick is a source of its strength rather than a weakness. Now, he wrote this in a study in the Kentucky Law Journal. He said the idea of fighting an accounting problem with an accounting solution is entirely coherent. The debt ceiling itself can be viewed as one big, poorly designed accounting gimmick. We're going to hit our ceiling. I was wrong. I was off two days. October 18th unless Congress acts in time to suspend the debt limit. The two parties are in a stalemate in the Senate. Republicans unwilling to join Democrats in what used to be a routine exercise. Democrats are holding back on using only their own votes to fix the problem. So that's what makes a trillion-dollar shiny coin. Do you know what that number looks like? It's a one with 12 zeros and a bunch of commas in between. Maybe it would work. But questions arise for a lot of Democrats as well as Republicans. Would they have wanted Donald Trump to be ordering up mega coins like Diet Cokes? Do they want the next president to have that power or even this one? Other extraordinary possibilities have been floated. I mean, they happen every time we approach a debt limit deadline, such as invoking the 14th Amendment's guarantee that the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned, which some scholars argue could be used to override the debt limit. The White House, obviously, they've looked at all of these options. None of the options are viable. That's according to all that financial guru from the sky that endowed the world with her presence, Jen Psaki. She said, so we know that the only path forward here is through Congress acting. What a great, intelligent, observant statement. So where's this debt ceiling come from? Well, it started back in World War I to make it easier for the U.S. to issue war bonds without needing congressional approval every time they did that. Legislators only needed to stay under the approved total amount of debt. That makes sense. Raising or suspending the ceiling has been a mostly uncontroversial task until the last 20 years because the debt comes mostly from spending that has already been approved by Congress 
or it covers payment mandated under law. Now, everything is being used for a fight. Everything. This especially. So the Treasury can't introduce new currency into circulation. Only the Fed can do that. In theory, the coin would be minted and deposited with the Fed, and its value would make its way into Treasury's general account and used to pay a a whole bunch of bills. Makes sense to me. So in practice, nobody knows precisely how it would work and what problems like uh, inflation would result. And Democrats don't seem willing to upend a messy process that for generations has nevertheless stood as a gold standard in global credit. Everybody wants to buy a U.S. Treasury bond because it's backed by the faith, the good faith, and the credibility of the United States of America, right? The idea of a $1 trillion colony got attention in 2013. Barack Obama struggled to get Republicans on board for it. Donald Marin, a tax policy ex- experts who had led the Congressional Budget Office during part of the Bush administration, thought it wasn't a great idea, but not a terrible one either. Analysts have considered a range of other options for avoiding default, he said, including prioritizing payments, asserting the debt limit is unconstitutional, and temporarily selling the gold in Fort Knox, all raise severe practical, legal, and image problems. In this ugly group, the platinum coin looks relatively shiny. But it still sounds like an Austin Powers sequel or a Simpsons episode. It lacks dignity. And of course, dignity is the driving thing for everything we do in this nation. It's got to look good. Doesn't matter if it is good, but it's got to appear to be good and equitable. There's the E word again. I hate that word. (laughs) And I, I hate the way we hear it every day in the context of policy. So what's Sleepy Joe up to? President Biden. I shouldn't call him Sleepy Joe. That's an insult. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Seriously, I'm sorry. What is President Biden up to? Well, yesterday he floated a brand new price tag for that proposed entitlement spending agenda that has been at the top of the news for weeks and weeks and weeks. Senate moderates continue signal opposition to his multi-trillion dollar proposal. So he's got to come up with an alternative. You know what he's asking for now? A bill that spends 1.9 to 2.2 trillion. You know, that's way cheaper. I mean, three and a half, nah. You know, we're not going to do that, but we'll drop it down to 1.9 or 2.2 or somewhere in between. It's unclear whether Democrat senators... Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, Joe Manchin from West Virginia are going to support his new proposal. Cinema has not detailed the top line number for the entitlement spending bill. Manchin did, though. He floated that $1.5 trillion number, a price that remains dramatically lower than what the Democrat leftists want. In fact, they want a blank check. Let's just be honest about it. That's not going to happen, Jayapal. Congresswoman Jayapal said Sunday about the $1.5 trillion number. Biden wants the bill to pay for two years of free college, free universal pre-K, subsidized child and elder care, and increased levels of food stamp steps, he argues, that are critical for American families. So he went to Michigan yesterday to detail how his plan's going to help us all. 
in an effort to steer away from the dramatic headlines focusing on the level of spending and tax hikes to pay for it. And so, as you probably have heard, the, the leftist, I mean, this is big time, folks. George Soros' not-for-profit is paying people to go seek out Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and harass them. Maybe Merrick Garland needs to step in because the harassment I've seen of the two is pretty darn close to being uh, terroristic and threatening actions. Maybe those people should be arrested or maybe even upstream because George Soros wrote the check to facilitate them doing it. So basically, he would be suborning acts of terrorism and harassment that, according to Merrick Garland, some are illegal. I just thought of that. I thought I'd throw it out there. Meanwhile, Manchin, he kind of surprised a lot of folks yesterday. He said he is open to a social spending bill that is more than his $1.5 trillion number. And he is signaling the possibility that he could soften his stance on the top-line number following days of tense negotiations and, of course, the harassment he's experiencing. I'm not ruling anything out, he said, but the bottom line is I want to make sure that we're strategic, we do the right job, we don't basically add more to the concerns that we have right now. His conversation that included this followed several reports that Biden has pressed House progressives to accept a compromise top line of $1.9 to $2.2 trillion for a spending bill. And that, of course, includes progressive-backed investments, they call them. They're not investments at all. They're spending because they're all part of social programs and green energy. Just days earlier, Manchin said it would be the definition of fiscal insanity to approve trillions in new spending despite funding shortages for Social Security and Medicare. Biden yesterday insisted, yet again, I'm a capitalist. And he said that in the context of saying he's pushing billions in new spending Republicans are deriding as socialism. I'm not a Republican, but I feel the same way as these Republicans that are saying that. It's not just socialism, it's just pure totalitarianism. I'm a capitalist, Biden told a crowd at the International Union of Operating Engineers, one local, at a training facility in Michigan yesterday. He and top congressional Dems have scrambled to find a way to broker a compromise between the mansions and cinemas of the world and all of those far lefties. Progressives, and let me ask you this, why do we call the likes of AOC and Jayapal, all these people, who came up with the term progressive? Have you looked up the definition of the word The definition of progressive, to be quite honest with you, it's 180 degrees away from what these quote-unquote progressives are doing and want to do. Seriously, I don't know who did it, but I hate to even say it. And it's just like the term Democrat. I'm sure you notice here at TNN Live and also on all of our written stories We don't call members of the other party, the non-conservative party, we don't call them progressives because I don't think there's anything progressive about their policies. And we don't call the party the Democrat Party 
because what they espouse is not democracy. They call themselves Democratic Party, which it's not. It's a party of Democrats, and that's a term, that's a label. I thought I'd throw that in. That's why you see and hear us refer to far left, left, moderates, or conservatives. If we're going to label anybody, they should be labeled accurately, right? So Manchin saying that yesterday, it made it sound like that these Democrat leaders are making some progress on their negotiation. And of course, some differences remain. House, here we go, Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington, pushed back and saying that 1.5 number of his, it ain't going to happen. And so they just keep going further and further and further towards coming up with trillions of dollars of spending that we don't have, we're not going to have over the next 10 years. And so you know how we, um, we predict things politically here in the United States, especially when it comes to health care matters and economic matters. We look to the east because it seems like just as the sun starts way over there in Asia, works its way across Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and then across the Atlantic to us. Inflation is coming from that way as well. New Zealand's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to New Zealand here. You could say New, e- New Zealand is way east of us or way west of us, your perspective. Their central bank raised their interest rates for the first time yesterday in more than seven years. And so that issues a bunch of signals. Some of the support that that bank put in place when the COVID-19 pandemic began is gone. They raised their benchmark rate to 0.5% from a record low of 0.25. They doubled it, in other words. The move came despite an ongoing lockdown still in Auckland, its largest city, due to a brand new COVID-19 outbreak. The bank said the lockdown had badly impacted some Auckland businesses, but a broad range of indicators pointed to New Zealand's economy performing strongly overall. It said inflation was expected to rise to 4% in the short term before easing to 2% in the medium term. I don't know how they think they can predict these numbers when day-to-day policies that govern what happens in their economy, just like it happens in ours, is not a cyclical thing that happens every year the same way. We have politicians making decisions here every day that change the situation regarding inflation. And this group in Washington are forcing inflation to epic levels. It's coming, folks. How bad is it going to be? We don't have any idea. I just got to tell you, I lived through President Jimmy Carter's four years in the White House. We were a young family, just getting rolling. And uh, let's see, we had we had two of our children during his presidency. In fact, our youngest daughter, Corey. Corey was born the day that Jimmy Carter was elected. I'll never forget that day for two reasons. Number one, he was elected that day, November 2nd. 1976, and Corey was born that day. It was a great day with Corey. That just made it 
tolerable over the Jimmy Carter thing. But I lived through 20% private lending, and I lived through 16, 17, 18% mortgage rates. Make no mistake, folks. If this administration stays, and if they're successful, we're going to eclipse that, and we're going to eclipse it very, very soon. I'm serious. That's exactly what inflation is going to do. And so here's what inflation does. As they tell us, Oh, it's not going to impact the middle class. We're helping the middle class. Look at what we're doing. We're putting so much pressure on these big corporations that now all across the country, we're seeing minimum wages, the minimum number raised to $15 an hour. Hoo-wee, look what's going to happen there. The raises that have already been experienced in the rise of prices, just one little thing has eaten up any kinds of benefits that have been felt by Americans in their gross income. And they're not getting any more for their money. You don't get any more for what you buy, no matter what the inflation rate is, no matter what the number that you pay when you get to the cash register. A dollar during stiff inflation times, a dollar doesn't buy what you could buy with that dollar before that massive inflation ramp-up started. Prices go up. Net income goes down. And you know who makes money hand over fist during inflation? The wealthiest of the wealthy Americans. Why is that? They park. They've got money to park. I think I told you this story before. My mother married a man who owned a big piece of a bank in South Louisiana. And during their marriage, he would give her, he would buy and give her stocks in that bank in her name. And during the Jimmy Carter years, I mean, you do the math. When prime lending rate goes to 18, 19%, banks typically pay 1% over prime to those who, quote unquote, invest by certificates of deposit and buying bank stock. So, I mean, you do the math. If my mom was given a a share of stock that was worth $1,000, when it came time for the quarterly benefits, the interest to be paid to her, she was getting 20% return on that $1,000 on an annual basis. So one year, if the rate stayed the same, which it seemed to actually went up a bunch, but on a $1,000, piece of uh, bank stock, her dividend was going to be, if it was 20%, $200. That's a pretty good return on money, but every Tom, Dick, and Harry out in the uh, the hinterlands didn't have that kind of money. They and me at the time, we were spending our money. We were a family. We had to pay for our housing, our transportation, our food, our health care, all of those things rolled in. And if any of that changed in cost, the change was never lower, folks, because top to bottom in the economy in a capitalistic system, inflation affects everybody on a percentage basis basically the same. But, folks, when you have $1,000 and you have the ability to let it sit somewhere and draw interest for a year, you're going to be able to to still have that thousand plus next year, another couple of hundred bucks. 
But when you don't have the thousand and you make a thousand, you spend it all on taking care of yourself and your family. It's a different world for middle class and lower class Americans economically. So Biden's out there now and he's floating the balloon. Can I get some of this money? Can I get some of these programs that we can put in place? I want to pacify all of the so-called progressives out there and I want big government to get even bigger. I want big government on my watch to seize more and more power from the American people and I want to go down in history as the guy that took over the decision-making for the American people totally. After all, We know they have always felt, they being the Democrat Party leadership, they have always felt everybody needs to just send all their money to us and let us take care of them. We know what's better for them after all. They don't know what we do. So Biden is out there negotiating a new spending package. President Biden left town today to sell his signature spending plans directly to American voters. Now, this came as feuding Democrats work to iron out exactly how much to spend and what programs to spend it on. We get more now from CBS's Nancy Cordes. Every bit of it's paid for. The president was in Michigan today to sell a plan he now admits must be slashed nearly in half. To oppose these investments is to be complicit in America's decline. He and House Democrats spent the morning discussing what to cut from his signature social spending package in order to secure the votes they need. That's like saying, pick your favorite child. Uh, (laughs) These are good programs. Democrats told the president they're most wedded to the bill's new climate protections, paid family leave, universal pre-K, and an extension of the child tax credit. We've been talking about everything. Today, one of the holdouts, West Virginia's Joe Manchin, said child care is his priority, too. I've always said children on the front end, and I think that's so important, people being able to get back to the workforce. But that leaves other measures in limbo, including two free years of community college and adding dental and vision coverage to Medicare. There's going to have to be give on every side to get this done, and I think we do. As they haggled, Washington drew one day closer to crisis as Republicans continued to block Democrats from quickly raising the nation's debt ceiling. That would require getting consent from every single Republican. I can't imagine that would happen. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned today that defaulting could trigger a national recession. It would be catastrophic to not pay the government's bills. Late today, the credit ratings agency Moody's expressed confidence that the debt ceiling would get lifted in time, predicting that Democrats will use a cumbersome mechanism to get it done on their own. But that is a precedent, Nora, that they have not been eager to set. So let's just get right to the chase and stop this conversation about this debt limit thing. Yeah, Democrats can do it on their own. They have 50 votes in the Senate. And all they need is 50, a 50-50 tie, throws it to Vice President Kamala Harris. She can cast the deciding vote and they can raise the debt limit without the Republicans. Joe Biden's out there. He's marching around. He's saying, oh, these evil Republicans, they won't agree with us. They won't do what we want to do, and no Congress has ever let the debt limit expire. We've never defaulted on our national debt. 
Well, let's look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Number one, what happens if we do default on our debt? What does that mean? It doesn't mean we're going to default on what we owe other than making a timely interest payment. They won't tell you that. And the second thing, let me ask you this. If we default on our debt, if you default on your debt, if you do, personally, what happens to you? Well, whoever you owe the money to, let's just say, for instance, you miss a bunch of car payments. What are they going to do? They're going to come get the car. Or if you miss your mortgage payments, they're going to come take your house from you. Those are tragic things and tragedies that none of us want to live through. But what would that look like if it's the United States of America that defaults on their debt? Who are the people that the United States owes all that money to? You're not going to believe this when I tell you, but most of it is belonged by Americans. Americans and our retirement funds, many wealthy Americans buy treasury bonds and put them in their portfolio. And then you have banks, investment banks, the big ones, the ones that you and I, taxpayers, we bailed out more than once. We kept them from imploding. You remember that? So what are they going to do? Are they going to come repossess the nation? (laughs) You know why? It will never happen. Think about it. Because what do you get if you repossess an asset? You have and you get back all of the liabilities that go along with the asset. Now, what is that? $25, $30 trillion that if somebody repossessed the United States, they would assume that liability? (laughs) This is nothing but political posturing. This is a way to weaponize an attack that they can make against their political opponents. You know why the Republicans haven't joined this whole concept? Months and months and months ago, we reported here at TNN Live, we reported a plan that was put forward by the Republican leadership in the House. They put it forward to members of the Democrat Party, leaders in the House, starting at the top, Nancy Pelosi. And it said, here are some things that we want to see happen Financial things, economic things that make a lot of common sense. I'm not going to go into the details. You can look it up. We've had it here. We publish stories about it here. You can go back and check it out and just uh, go on truthnewsnet.org and do a search debt limit and see what pops up. But what they were proposing was exactly opposite of what this president wants. He wants a blank check. He wants social spending concepts and ideas and a way to spend more money unilaterally without going to Congress to do it. They don't want to do that. They want a blank check. They demand a blank check. And so Republicans said, hey, you've got a 50-50 tie in the Senate. You've got the vice president that can cast a deciding vote. So we're going to disagree with you. We're not going to go along with your egregious spending plan, we're just not going to do it. So if you want to raise a debt limit, go ahead and do it. You don't need us. You got 50. You got the vice president. And by the way, 
to get it done without the vice president and without going this route, Mitch McConnell, minority leader in the Senate, would have to get every Republican to sign off on it. And I think you probably know this. Every Republican ain't going to sign off on the new debt limit without some changes that need to be made in our economic structure. By the way, Democrat stuff has very little to do with the economy. Just that debt thing. When you're fed up with the nagging heartburn of today's lies, how do you spell relief? TNN, the Truth News Network. At Target, our first priority is the health of you, your families, and our team members. That's why we now require guests to wear a mask or face covering and continue to provide masks and gloves to protect our team members. Every day, we deep clean our stores and wipe down carts and baskets after every use. And you can always count on easy, contactless shopping options like drive-up and same-day delivery. We believe in always taking care, and we'll always do that for you. Learn more at Target.com slash a bullseye view. Welcome to Staples. Staples guy, my company has like seven different printers. How's your ink selection? Behold, Staples Wall of Ink. Just wow. A huge selection of ink and toner guaranteed in stock. Hello, awesome. If it's not, we take $10 off and ship it to you free. Pinch me. I said pinch. I heard you. New low prices on ink and toner and an in-stock guarantee. Staples. Make more happen. In a world of change, one thing remains constant. The bedrock of truth. Welcome to the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. You know, you don't have truth just laying around on the ground. Sometimes it just slaps you in the face, but... More often than not, it really doesn't. It just it happens, and we have to go find solutions. And throwing good money after bad. My dad taught me a long time ago, that's not a good idea. It's never a good idea to do that. I mean, get ideas that stand alone. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, deal with them individually. And yeah, you can, you can put things in a package when they're related, and the circumstance dictate that it's okay to do that. That's okay. But folks, it's absolutely nuts to just throw a bunch of things together that together the only good thing, and you you can't even guarantee it's going to be a good thing that comes from it, but the only thing that comes out of it is opportunity for a bunch of disarray and misunderstanding and abuse and misuse of funds. You know, those taxpayer funds, <laughs> they've got plenty enough of our money. I mean, if a government can't live on $4 trillion a year without borrowing money, I mean, at my house, we know how much money comes in every month, and we know how much money we commit to, we have to spend. And so, novel idea. We try to keep more in the bank than we have to pay bills with. Why the heck can our government do that? We're talking about a lot of people that are great intellectuals. they educated to the hilt. They have all kinds of economic, in most cases, economic um, accomplishments in their wake. And yet, <laughs> they can't balance a budget. I, 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 I still get lost when we start talking about 
well, we got to borrow more money. That's like when your kid goes to college as a freshman and they live like our, our, our two girls went to Louisiana Tech, 60 miles from Shreveport. And so they're going to be over there. We knew that they were going to have financial things that came up every day or so. They're going to want to go get dinner one night. They need gas in a car, all kinds of stuff, last minute things. And for a while, we, we got the phone calls, mom, dad. I need some money. I need some money. So what we did is we sat them down and said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to have an account and you're going to get so much money in it. And from the account, let's budget what you need each month for food, what you need for gas, what you need for supplies and what's left over for entertainment or whatever else. That's what you're going to have. So you got to make it work. Choose what you're going to spend it on. And we'll determine how much you're going to have to spend, right? 50% of our two daughters got that right. (laughs) One did, one didn't. So I know parents that give their kids credit cards. And, you know, hey, we're going to be smart. They tell their friends, the parents do. We're going to be smart. We're going to give them each credit cards. And they're going to have X amount as far as a credit limit. So late one night. Friday night, weekend's coming up. They got a big thing going on. Uh, Going to an out-of-town football game with their friends. That means hotel and food and gas and all that kind of stuff. Mom, Dad, I'm out of money. What am I going to do? And in the old days, a lot of moms and dads would just give them another credit card. That's exactly what Joe Biden and Democrats are asking we American taxpayers to do. Give us another credit card with a higher limit on it. That's what we want. We're not taking care of our spending on the previous credit card and the amount has uh, it's ballooned beyond our capabilities of dealing with. Help us. Help us. That's exactly what's happening. Golly, this this first hour and a half has just gone crazy. Uh, let Let me touch in on this. Have you noticed... How many times you're hearing from Democrats about the tax increases that are proposed? That's the quote-unquote heart of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that Nancy Pelosi won't let go to the floor of the House to be discussed because she's making it a a package deal. Both of them, the big $2.5 trillion and the $1.2 trillion have got to pass at the same time or we're not going to take it up. So the big thing included in the $2.5 trillion is a whole bunch of new taxes. You've heard them say it over and over and over again. It's not going to cost a dime. It's not going to cost anybody anything. If a person makes $400,000 or less, they're not going to see a penny go up. It's because... We're raising taxes on the wealthiest of Americans. And then the conversation morphs into this. This is the part that I'm going to deal with with you and make sure you understand before we leave today. We're going to tax the wealthiest of Americans. Do you know, this is what you hear all the time, do you know that 50 companies, large corporations, that made billions of dollars last year didn't pay one dime in interest, federal interest. They didn't pay any taxes, no federal taxes whatsoever. And so they're evil because they've 
found ways to take advantage of you middle-class taxpayers. So this brings up the question, and I guarantee you, you've asked this question, so we're going to answer it. Is it true 50 companies who made billions paid zero in federal income taxes? Now let me break it down, and I'm going to give you three different scenarios. But first of all, let me explain. It is true that in some years, certain corporations, often those that appear profitable, pay zero federal income taxes. You know what? Put this on your shoe, on your foot. There are sometimes when you do your federal income tax, you do your return at the end of the year, April 15th, you're rushing to get it in. It turns out you're afraid, oh, I may owe something additional in taxes and I don't have the extra money. Well, what happens? Sometimes you get a refund. Sometimes you don't owe anything more. The payroll deductions that have been taken out of your checks and passed along to the IRS by your employer are sufficient. And after you fill out the tax form and you get to the bottom, lo and behold, they owe you a couple of hundred dollars or you owe zero. It works the same way in corporations. It's not because of any tricks or loopholes. There are a bunch of legitimate reasons why a profitable company should not pay income taxes. And I'm going to explain that. For the most part, this is a misconception, and it comes down to two things. A misunderstanding of how corporate income is defined by law and a misunderstanding of how corporate income is taxed. Now let's get into the explanations. And this isn't lengthy, and it's easy to understand. First, there is a reason to believe that many of the corporations you think of as being profitable don't actually turn a profit this year. Why is that, Dan? Well, it's because companies report what's called book income on their financial statements. And that follows typical U.S. accounting standards and are designed to make companies appear as profitable as possible to their shareholders. However, the tax code, now what is the tax code? It's all the rules, the IRS, everything they they get, the directives and stuff. And you know who's responsible for all of that, by the way, 535 members that serve in the United States Congress. They are the sole authorities to craft all these laws and these regulations. The tax code operates under different accounting rules. For tax purposes, governments use what's called taxable income. They do the same thing for you, which is defined by law and accounts for three important factors. Here's the three. One, a company's net operating losses. A company's net operating losses. The U.S. tax code allows companies with losses in one tax year to deduct those losses from their profits in future tax years, all the way down to zero, if that's what the number, when you take away the net income and the net expenses. That prevents corporations with long-term net losses from being taxed. Number two, where a company earns its profits, where they earn it. Folks, a lot of large U.S. corporations, they conduct business in a bunch of different countries. 
The U.S. offers tax credits for the taxes they pay to foreign governments on their foreign income to mitigate double taxation. It's just like the taxes you pay, state, local, or deductible in some cases. If you pay it to one entity, you're not going to have to pay it to another municipal entity. And then the third, how much money a company invests in equipment and machinery. Now, the most important difference between book income and taxable income has to do with how the treatment of capital investment purchases are handled, such as for new equipment and machinery. Under typical U.S. accounting standards, when a corporation makes a capital purchase, buys a bunch of equipment, trucks, even airplanes, if you're in the aeronautical industry, it's only able to treat a small fraction of that payment. You purchase a truck, you purchase an airplane, a jet. Only a small fraction of that investment as a current year expense and they must write off that purchase over many years. There is an asset depreciation schedule that the IRS has they put in there for every type of such investment in equipment a business makes. And the lifetime over which the depreciation can happen, let's say you spend $1,000 for this piece of equipment, it may be amortized over 10 years. So the first year, if it's 1000 and I'm just using this as an illustration, you get to depreciate the value of that 10%. The next year, 10 more, all the way down to zero. Now, when you depreciate it, you can deduct those amounts from your income, your net income. That's how it works. Sometimes, in different parts of the nation, I'll give you an example. Back in, the, I think, the late 80s, um, luxury boats, became virtually impossible to sell. They were extraordinarily expensive. I'm talking about yachts, but not not necessarily the multi-million dollar yachts, but the ones that were in the hundreds of thousands. And I'm just using this as an example. So a bunch of lawmakers, because they lived in states, and in their states, there were companies that manufactured and sold these big boats, and they were having to lay people off, and unemployment was soaring, and these big businesses weren't able to pay their 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 income uh, their employees. They couldn't operate. There was default on all of that kind of stuff. Just rolled into one novel idea. Why don't we incentivize people? Give people in corporations the ability to take advantage, and in doing so, help these companies stay afloat. So, how could Congress do that? They passed regulations, rules they're called in government that ended up in the IRS that allowed these corporations and even personal people to depreciate their purchase amounts on these big boats over a shorter period of time. In fact, there is one, I think it's going on right now this year, but I don't know for sure. I... I didn't have a need to buy a corporate jet this year. <laughs> but in previous years, they would attract buyers to buy equipment, sometimes jets. That's the one we're talking about, a corporate jet. Uh, there is a normal depreciation schedule for corporate jets 
over so many years. So if you, in a company, you use it in your business primarily. So in that role, you pay $5 million for a corporate jet. Every year, that jet, because of use and age, it depreciates in its real value. They set, the IRS sets, and Congress approves a depreciation schedule. So that $5 million jet next year, it may be worth $4 million. Well, that million dollars in between, they get to write that off their taxes. You follow the, the thinking? So what they do in many cases is we've got people, companies, the aero, aerospace industry, we've got people that have hundreds of corporate jets built and sitting on the ground they can't sell. And this may be in like June or July. So guess what? They pass a rule and say, you buy one of these this year, you can depreciate it all this year. So if it's a $5 million jet, normal depreciation would let you write off $1 million each year. This year, you get to write off $5 million. So if you owe $5 million in federal taxes and buy a jet that year, you don't owe a dime on that particular thing. You got it? That's how it works. The tax codes allows corporations to treat a much larger fraction of the same investment as a current year expense, which means it can deduct that purchase from its taxes the same year it made the purchase instead of on a schedule, the depreciation schedule. So next time you hear about folks, a profitable company paying no income tax, chances are that it had a combination of both zero or negative book income and either net operating losses, significant foreign profits that they pay taxes on overseas, sizable capital investments, or all of the above. Of course, it's also important to remember federal income taxes aren't the only taxes these companies pay. Businesses are also liable for state income taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, and excise taxes. And so when Joe Biden and other sycophant Democrats in office, they say these companies didn't pay any federal income tax last year. What they're saying is the net of what they did in their business allows them to not have paid any taxes to the federal government last year. And guess who controls it all? Congress. Congress makes all these laws themselves. Congress makes all the rules that end up at the IRS that they adopt. And Congress changes it all. The president can't. You or I can't. State governors can't. That's the way it works, folks. And just to cut to the chase, all this crap that we're hearing about major corporations, 50 of them didn't pay a dime last year, is horse hockey. They didn't pay a dime. They paid millions. But their federal tax bill was zero. Real truth. Real news. TNN. The Truth News Network. iHeartRadio goes one-on-one with Selena Gomez with the best advice she has for her fans. Don't change for anyone, you know? I think that you constantly go through phases in your life where you meet new people or exciting people and you want to be everything that they want or need and it's just not worth it if you're not really happy with who you are or if you're not wanting to be someone that you're not. It's just not worth it. Keep listening to iHeartRadio for more Selena Gomez and all your favorite artists. 
Here's good news. Even with high unemployment, there's still a need for hundreds of thousands of cybersecurity professionals in the U.S. right now. And my computer career is training people to help meet the demand. No IT experience? No problem. Take the free career evaluation today at mycomputercareer.edu. Start your new life as an IT pro in as little as four months. Grants covering up to 53% of the cost are available to those who qualify. It's not rocket science. It's mycomputercareer.edu. This is the sound of regular water droplets. This is the sound of vitamin water droplets. Regular water. Vitamin water. Regular water. Vitamin water. Hey, come on now. Vitamin water. It has vitamins, but also parties. New Dunkin' Refreshers. Vibrant fruit flavors like strawberry dragon fruit and peach passion fruit. B vitamins and energy from green tea. All under 200 calories. Order ahead via the Dunkin' app for contactless way to order, pay, and pick up in the drive-thru. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Well... We got so many different things. We're we're gonna run slap out of time, and we're not gonna get to uh, even some of the big stuff we want to talk about. I wanted to get into the Pandora Papers. Have you heard about it? We're not gonna do that today. It's uh, it's very important. Basically, it's an expose uh, through some amazing investigation. It's been found and discovered a um, a method that. The extremely wealthy in the world, I mean big time, executives, entertainment tycons, uh, billionaires, government people, ways that they can hide their money and they're being outed for it. We'll do that sh- that story when we start the show tomorrow. It's a really big deal. It, it'll really uh, get you thinking about what's going on in the world around us that we think just might be happening, but we can't put our finger on it. I want to get... I want to get into, for the last segment of the uh, the show today, some stuff about illegal immigration and what's going on there. The attorney who Joe Biden appointed to prosecute illegal aliens facing deportation, you would think that they would get somebody that was arbitrary, that was hopelessly committed to the rule of law, you would think. Well, this attorney supported sanctuary policies, those for sanctuary cities and states, and represented criminal illegal aliens in courts. Carrie Doyle, Biden appointed Carrie Doyle to lead ICE, their agency office of the principal legal advisor that's responsible totally for prosecuting illegals facing deportation from the U.S. Now, Doyle is a local media, has reported this as an immigration attorney out of Boston, He famously co-filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration's travel ban back in 2017 that stopped immigration to the U.S. from Iraq, Syria, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Yemen, and Venezuela. Ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled that that travel ban, by the way, is constitutional, underscoring a president's authority over immigration in the national interest. So Doyle's record, Carrie Doyle, female, and I'm no, I'm sexist for even saying that. But anyway, her record extends also 
to initiating sanctuary legislation in local communities, and she's been a critic of ICE as an enforcer of federal immigration law. Go figure. And now she is running the show. John Fear with the Center for Immigration Studies wrote that Doyle is a strong advocate of sanctuary policies and has advocated for legislation that would stop local law enforcement from even inquiring about a suspect's immigration status. Forget about the fact that anybody, I don't care who it is, if you step a foot on American soil and you are not already an American citizen or you haven't gotten a visa for whatever reason or reasons that gives you authority to be here, that by federal law is a criminal act. Forget about that. She doesn't want anybody to legally be able to even ask what your suspect, you may pull somebody over on the side of the road and it looks and they act like they may be an illegal immigrant. She wants to make it illegal for a cop to even ask that question. So what else is going on? Well, you don't hear about this all of a sudden because of this two and a half and this $1.2 trillion spending bill combo. It's kind of dominated the press. We don't hear anything about southern border problems, do we? Well, guess what? Border Patrol agents down in the Rio Grande Valley sector, they disrupted a bunch of human attempts leading to the apprehension of at least 55 different migrants. These interdictions included traffic stops along with stash house raids. Listen to this. Early Monday morning, agents were patrolling U.S. Highway 285 near Falfurious, Texas. They saw the driver of a white Dodge Ram truck picking up a bunch of migrants as they came out of the brush. The area is well known as a human smuggling pickup point where the migrants have come after circumventing the checkpoint on U.S. Highway 281. So the agents tried to stop the truck, but the driver failed to yield, led them on a vehicle pursuit. It came to an end when the driver veered off the road. Eventually, several migrants bailed out of the truck and ran into the brush. The agents conducted a search of the area, and they took four migrants into custody. They identified the migrants as citizens of Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico, and the driver managed to avoid arrest. Rio Grande Valley sector agents teamed up with Starr County Sheriff's Office deputies later that evening to execute a warrant on a suspected human smuggling stash house in Roma, Texas. As the agents entered that apartment, guess what they saw? Seven migrants illegally present. The agents arrested the migrants, including an unaccompanied child and the caretaker of the stash house, who is a U.S. citizen. Agents reported the migrants as citizens of El Salvador, Mexico, and Romania, of all places. A couple of days earlier, Brooks County Sheriff's Office deputies requested assistance from Border Patrol as they chased a fleeing suspect human smuggler back near Falfuris. The driver of a white F-150 drove through a rancher's fence before coming to a stop. A bunch of migrants bailed out, fled into the brush, A helicopter crew joined in the search and assisted in the apprehension of 14 migrants. We're not done yet. That evening, agents raided another human smuggling stash house operation near Edinburgh, which is a suburb of McAllen, Texas. The agents teamed up with federal and local law enforcement teams, entered a house, 
and they found uh, 21 illegal migrants. The agents identified them as citizens of El Salvador and Honduras. In the McAllen station, agents there just happened to arrest another 30 illegals at another Edinburgh area stash house. And it gets worse. El Paso sector border patrol agents found a group of migrants locked inside a tractor trailer near Las Cruces, New Mexico. The locked trailer, when they got it open, had 69 migrants who had no way of getting away from them. I mean, they were in the van. It was a truck, a tractor-trailer truck. They opened the door, bam, there they are. Las Cruces Station Border Patrol agents assigned to a New Mexico immigration checkpoint. In the wee hours of the morning, they saw a white tractor-trailer approaching for inspection. So during the initial part of the inspection, agents got suspicious due to the nervous nature and the inconsistent stories coming from the driver. So the agents referred the driver to a secondary inspection station, according to information that was obtained. During the second inspection, agents conducted a physical search of the vehicle, found those 69 migrants locked inside. After an immigration interview, the agents discovered the migrants to be eligible for expulsion under Title 42 COVID protection protocols. During the inspection, the agents also found more than $11,000 in cash inside the trailer. You can't make this stuff up. It happens over and over and over and over. And here's the thing, folks. It's very structured and very organized. These cartels in Mexico, they have turned this whole process into a bonanza for them financially. It's estimated they're making a billion dollars a month, these cartels are collectively, at this new cottage industry that the Democrats in the United States started and they have maintained it. Nobody said anything about this. I've not heard anybody mention what I'm about to ask. Wonder who else is making money on this stuff. If there's ever any alleged suspected criminality going on in pretty much anything, you can almost always ask this question. Where's the money flow? Follow the money. A little further west, Tucson, Arizona. They arrested in one group, one group, 160 migrants. When they did the determination, they were found to be from Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Nearly 130 unaccompanied migrant children were part of that group. 160, one group, folks. That happened over the weekend. These big groups are coming. Of the 449 migrants arrested in four of the latest big groups, 300 of them were unaccompanied children. So what happens then? Border Patrol transfers those kids to HHS once they're processed. The kids will be taken to one of several of the emergency intake sites. Staff will work to find relatives 
or sponsors within the United States. If they can't, they'll find foster homes for them. DHS Office of Refugee Resettlement released 120,000 unaccompanied migrant children to sponsors across the U.S. this year. And that number does not include migrant children who are citizens of Mexico who were swiftly returned to their home country. There were 13,101 unaccompanied migrant children still being held in federal detention as of Friday, still awaiting release. According to one congressional report, the likely cause of this in unaccompanied migrant kids is related to the discontinuance of their removal under that Title 42 CDC emergency order. The change began in February when the Biden administration decided not to apply the order to children, thus allowing them to be released into the United States. The report found that migrant family units are voluntarily sending their kids into the U.S. for that one reason alone. How much does all this cost taxpayers? Well, so far this year, just this year, it is estimated by Health and Human Services the cost of all of this rolled in is $6 billion. Billions with a B. $6 billion. And guess who picks up the tab for that? You and I do, taxpayers. If and when the bills are paid, but they're not being paid. And that's why Joe, President Biden, that's why he... HHS, all the Democrats that are backing wide open borders, that's why they're in this. They don't give a rip about who's going to pay the bill. They just want those people in here. Still can't figure it out. Still can't get to the bottom of exactly what's going on. I don't know that we'll ever know for sure, but it always, almost always, and in this case I think it really does, it points to dollars and cents and the ability long-term to come up with a plan, initiate a plan, work the plan to its finish, to get all of these illegals not only dependent upon the U.S. government, which they all are and will be, there's no um, driving force within these people on a large basis, a consensus basis, to fit into the American system and get an education, and from that education, get a get a good job, build a family, and start a life in the United States that operates within the law. Most of these people are here for the handout, and the people that are bringing them here are in for the money they make just for bringing them here. They don't care. And then, of course, you have the human smugglers and the sex smugglers and the sex traffickers, and the drug traffickers. It's all rolled in to be one massive enterprise. And it's all built around one thing, illegality. Isn't that disheartening to think that our government is suborning that, that this president is pushing it purposely, wants more and more of it to be in in place? But that's exactly what's going on, folks. And it's not going to change anytime soon unless the American people say enough's enough. But we're going to end this show today with one final little notification for you. This one's going to blow your mind. The local government up in Seattle, guess what they announced yesterday? They have purchased 
luxury buildings in a downtown neighborhood of Seattle. A bunch of them. You know why they're doing it? To house homeless people who are today living on the streets. Three new buildings in the upscale Capitol Hill neighborhood where one of the buildings has stunning views of the Space Needle and Puget Sound Towers. Two iconic Seattle buildings those are. Two of those buildings were made with the part of the $1.9 billion American Recovery Plan 2021 federal aid package the government released to alleviate the pandemic shutdown. Wow. Emily Alvarado, the Seattle Office of Housing Director, said this, Everybody deserves a high-quality, affordable place to call home. Like, free, huh? The fact we're able to produce high-quality, affordable housing in a price that's good for the public through our subsidy is a win-win. So Seattle's got 12,000 people living in the street. With the purchase of these buildings, that cost $50 million or $300,000 for each unit. They're going to be 165 apartments to house families and single individuals who are about to become homeless or may already be living on the streets. A bunch of construction people were discussed with all of this to get the details. People in business who stated the price paid by Democrat Jenny Durkin's administration for the buildings is double or triple what it costs to build them. So the insanity of the left, just when you think you've seen it all, heard it all, (laughs) you have it, and it gets worse. That's a wrap on the day, folks. Wow. There's so much we didn't get done. We're going to circle back tomorrow for some of that. You guys have a great day, and we will see you tomorrow at 9 on TNN Live. Who draws the crowd and plays so loud, baby, it's the guitar man. Who's gonna steal the show, you know, baby, it's the guitar man. He can make you love, he can make you cry.
then the lights begin to flicker and the sound is getting dim. The voice begins to falter and the crowds are getting thin.